Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about technology, power, society, and what it means to be human in the age of information. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and this is episode nine of our series of bonus episodes in partnership and collaboration with All Tech is Human. All Tech is Human is an accelerator for tech consideration and a hub for the responsible tech community. A part of how All Tech is Human is living into their mission during these increasingly digital times is by producing regular live stream events with experts in the AI ethics space who are pushing the status quo and interrogating issues of race, gender, class, and more in the technology sector. If you are new to this series, the format for these episodes features selected audio from the previous week's All Tech is Human event. And in the outro, Jess and I discuss which action items you can all take, some ways to continue the conversation, and our patented blend of commentary. Please note that if you would like to experience the undoctored audio recording, please follow the link in the show notes to view the original All Tech is Human live stream for the event. This conversation explores the topic improving social media, misinformation, and free expression with expert guest speakers Jasmine McNeely and Claire Wardell. Dr. Jasmine McNeely is an associate professor of telecommunication at the University of Florida. She is also a Harvard Berkman Klein Center affiliate and an expert on media and law. Dr. Claire Wardell is the co-founder and director of First Draft. She's also a leading expert on user-generated content, verification, and misinformation. This conversation was moderated by All Tech is Human's David Ryan Polgar. The organizational partner for the event was The Bridge. Let's just start right out. Uh, Jasmine, I'll start with you. Misinformation, huge topic. Everybody's discussing it right now. Tell us a little bit more about what you're working on, your background, and then specifically how how you change some of your thinking uh, in light of the, the January 6th attack. Well, David, thank you again for having me. Uh, as you said, I am an associate professor in telecommunication, which is an antiquated way of saying digital media, <laughs> but also the associate director of the Marion B. Breckner First Amendment Project here at the University of Florida. Uh, I, I take a kind of untraditional First Amendment stance or stance that's not as popular related to the First Amendment, uh, and that is I'm not a First Amendment absolutist, but I think it's really important that we have a conversation about power. And I think with misinformation and disinformation, the key, particularly as we're dealing with social media and platforms, is thinking about power and power dynamics. Yes, I know part of the conversation or a majority of the conversation is about what to do about when people or individuals encounter disinformation or misinformation and what kind of education we can give to people. But there's a supreme lack of considering how individuals are not equipped to deal with the power that uh, information platforms have and to deal with the sheer volume of misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it, um, that they will encounter Mm -hmm. on these various uh, platforms. But also the idea of amplification. I know one of the, the arguments is always that, you know, as it deals with politics, especially, Fake news or false speech has always been around. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It has not, however, been able to gain the amount of attention and, and sheer reach that it has um, 
you know, now with these various social media platforms. So just thinking about power and amplification yeah. of the messages that are, um, you know, false and the campaigns to spread this kind of information, I think is critically important when we are having this discussion. It certainly is. And then actually before uh, we send it over to Claire to learn a bit of, um, about what uh, what you're working on, Claire. Uh, Jasmine, I'd love to to have you expand a little bit on the First Amendment since you do since you mentioned it. That comes up very frequently. So uh, I guess my my question is, oftentimes when users are discussing misinformation or content moderation, we tend to approach it or we tend to think of it, at least in the United States, as hey, it's you know Facebook or Twitter or you name it. Uh, they're offending my First Amendment right. But however, the First Amendment is written about what government cannot do in the way it's actually done with a recent Supreme Court decision is that it's actually Twitter and Facebook and other social media platforms that have their own First Amendment rights. So could you expand on that? Because it seems to be an area that comes up very frequently and probably an area of a lot of confusion. Yeah, so particularly we're talking about the First Amendment in the United States, uh, a Typical refrain is if you kick me off a platform or if you block somebody that I think we should have access to their information, well, you're violating their free expression rights. Well, not exactly. It's not a right under the Constitution for you to be able to use someone else's platform and say whatever you want to say. Um, you know, maybe ethically. But legally, no, platforms okay. don't have a responsibility to allow people to just do and say whatever they want to. And in fact, as you've uh, stated, there have been cases where we're talking about um, analogous to a private person's property or analogous sometimes to business property where you're a business invitee and you get to be um, use the business for certain reasons, but you don't get to use them for all the reasons that you'd want to use them. And that's not your constitutional right in the United States to do that or to express yourself in any way that you see fit. Okay. Again, also, even if there were a First Amendment right to be using someone else's platform, uh, the First Amendment is not absolute. And when we get into a discussion, I'm sure we're going to talk about it later, into the kinds of misinformation and disinformation and incitement that can mm -hmm. happen on platforms, depending on the kinds of expression that are, are put out there, you don't necessarily have a right to incite particular harms against other people. Okay. And I think that's critical, critical for understanding as well. Another thing is, yes, we're talking about the First Amendment rights of corporations um, as well, which adds another wrinkle into this conversation. Um, there's, There's a lot of wrinkles, a lot of wrinkles on this conversation. Right. There's also Section 230, yeah. which is not the First Amendment, but it has expression implications. And so this is a, obviously a very complex uh, discussion related to law, but I think people confuse constitutional rights um, related to the government, as you said, versus uh, rights related to corporations, even though as you said, and this is really important, there's a concentration of power that makes it seem like sometimes these platforms are government in a particular way. They seem to have, I mean, we had a, a previous guest talk about, uh, you know, sometimes platforms have this similar power to nation states and should we treat them in that same capacity? And we also saw kind of, uh, I think it was, uh, was Denmark, they had their tech ambassador who's now working with Microsoft 
but anyhow, you know, thinking about this uh, relationship. So Claire, I think it's a great time to bring you in, obviously a well-known expert tackling the area of misinformation. Tell us a little bit about some of the work that you and your organization, First Draft, are, are working on. Uh, well, thanks so much for the invitation to have this conversation. I feel like there are lots of these conversations. And I think, as we've been saying, it, it's so um, complex. We're only, we need to talk them through. Um, so First Draft is a nonprofit. We were started in 2015. Um, before misinformation was sexy, we used to help newsrooms verify social media content from breaking news events. And then in 2016, of course, we had Duterte using Facebook in really problematic ways. We had Brexit. We obviously had uh, the US election. And all of a sudden, everybody really cared about how do you decipher what's true online? So at First Draft, we do a lot of research. We do a lot of training. And we do a lot of monitoring to understand this and to understand how the space is shifting constantly. So even something like back in 2015, 2016, we'd say, well, fact checkers, they fact check official claims by politicians, mm -hmm. but we are verifying content by unofficial sources. Well, by 2018, it was very clear that one of the biggest proponents of misinformation were politicians themselves, including the leader of the free world. And so kind of understanding all of these elements of who, who was propagating this, what was mm -hmm. the impact, this question of amplification, when if you've got a politician sharing content online, the mainstream media then gives that more oxygen. This whole ecosystem has shifted in front of my eyes almost every single year. You know, the tactics that we were looking at in 2016 have shifted quite considerably because the more that platforms have made changes and policy moves, bad actors, so-called, have mm -hmm. had to shift their tactics. So, for example, we see a lot of out, a lot less outright fake or false content. We see a lot more misleading content a lot more content that will go right up to the policy line, but won't cross it. And that's a deliberate tactic. So for example, if we're talking about vaccine misinformation, you know, people just say, I don't know, I'm just asking the question. Mm. Does mRNA, does that change my DNA? I don't know. And that, I mean, that's the conversation we were just having. Most misinformation is legal speech. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about terrorist related content, child sexual abuse imagery, that is illegal content and almost irrespective of the jurisdiction, there's a kind of a society-wide acceptance that that kind of speech won't be tolerated. Legal speech, which includes pornography, I mean, mm -hmm. going back to what the platforms do, if they really were protecting, you know, First Amendment rights in that way, then, you know, they have made a decision they don't want pornography on their platforms. And so that is a corporate decision because they don't think it's good for their bottom line. So they are making these decisions about what they want to moderate or what they don't want to moderate. And so... Having, we have to monitor these platforms to understand these shifting tactics and techniques to then work with journalists, public health professionals, other people to help them understand this, this ecosystem and how it's changed. So, yeah, we're kept busy, let's say that. It's certainly busy. And, and you do talk about, like I said, uh, pornography, which obviously ties in with even how Section 230 uh, got passed uh, with bipartisan support in 1996, where it was really focused at that time. On, uh, on pornography and kind of the, the uh, scare in the, in the late 90s around that topic, giving uh, platforms the right but not responsibility. But you mentioned COVID. So what are you seeing right now around that kind of borderline content? And I like to bring up in this section that a lot of our discussion around COVID and, and the, the correct precautions is always going to evolve as, as the science deepens. And one example of that would be early in uh, in the uh, pandemic, in, this is talking about, uh, I guess, March of 2020, you had Gwyneth Paltrow, who at the time, it was against conventional wisdom to wear a mask, and she had, had a mask on, 
and was criticized for that. So I guess my, my question would be, how do we create an environment where we knock down true misleading information that right now can actually lead to deaths uh, and, and a lot of danger with COVID-19, but at the same time, allow for a certain level of expression to challenge the conventional wisdom because that's, that's how we normally think of a information ecosystem. Do you want me to start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. I'd love but, I mean, COVID is just this incredible case study and we need to recognize we've made a lot of mistakes, mm -hmm. those of us who are in the kind of quality information space, because in many ways, if we go back to a 1996, when we still lived in an ecosystem where there were gatekeepers, um, that certain storytelling techniques worked then. Now we're in an era where if there's any ambiguity, that gets weaponized. Mm -hmm. And so the kind of ambiguity that we had at the beginning, which as scientists and researchers, this is how science works. It builds upon replication and you know additional data and so early on when we you know, the cdc and who could not agree whether masks worked hadn't decided whether air, where it was whether it was airborne transmission and unfortunately right at the beginning of the pandemic the platforms were like thank god this isn't political misinformation it's health misinformation if we just hang ourselves off the back of the who we'll be safe and then within about six weeks it was quite clear they were like oh god we can't hang our hat on like this definitive truth because science is continuously shifting and so that's unfortunately what we've seen is that there has been missteps in the public health communication space even things like preprints where scientists quite rightly are saying here's some early data because we think it will help the scientific community but that's not happening you know in a closed environment it's happening on twitter where journalists set up bots so they can see the latest preprints and then amplify it there's so much about communication that we've learned in the last year and i think just to just to say about there's a spectrum there's the people suggesting that Bill Gates is going to microchip you. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's real anti-vax content that, of course, is problematic. But I would argue those communities are still relatively niche. And those communities are still, you know, there's somewhat of a boundary around that. What I think we forget is there's a lot of people who have very valid questions by somebody saying, I'm pregnant, should I get vaccinated? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm confused. Pfizer's got indemnity in the UK. Is it safe or not? You know, you see people asking these questions. And I think if, you know, should I be wearing a mask? I don't know. And so if we don't recognize that is that misinformation, you know, that's a vacuum of information which gets filled by conspiracy and misinformation. So how can those of us who work in the quality information space think about the ways to communicate when there's uncertainty? And so it's not because also to your point, if, if um, quality news providers just said, everybody get vaccinated, they're perfectly safe. And we have a situation in two weeks time when that becomes that's not clear we're going to lose trust forever so it's mm -hmm. really hard and i'm not saying anything other than that but doing communication in 2021 is very different from doing communication in 1996 and not all so not, we've yeah. not all necessarily woken up to that yeah well i guess we'll get back to the question of power that jasmine brought up uh so claire what what role do you think platforms should take in pushing uh, users towards quality information or the latest quality information around COVID-19? So they have their information centers, which they get excited about, and they tell governments <laughs> how much they're doing. Um, but I think, you know, and this is to Jasmine's point too, which is how do we educate people about these kind of issues, but in a way that explains that there's difference and that that science develops, et cetera, et cetera. And also not have this this kind of you know, if you talk to platforms, they'll say, listen, we try and put more quality information into people's feeds, but it doesn't mean they click on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they skip over it. So there's so much here about who should make the decisions about what quality information is. But fundamentally, they should be um, pushing up newsrooms, 
uh, health professionals. But if they're going to do that, we should also ensure that there is an inconsistency. I mean, there's public health professionals right now on Twitter, quite rightly, having a conversation about, do we need two doses? Does it have to be after 12 weeks? I mean, there's a scientific conversation happening on Twitter. But we're also seeing that conversation being weaponized by people taking advantage of that. So it's mm-hmm. just really difficult to figure out how the, how the platforms work because there's so much of what they do that connects and improves our knowledge, but also it can be really detrimental in ways that these unintended consequences that we hadn't even considered. Certainly. Well, Jasmine, I'll bring you up. Uh, we're getting a bunch of questions, so thank you for that. So anybody watching, please participate. Ask your questions in the comment section. I'll try to weave them into our conversation with our panelists. So we've got a big one right here. Uh, what is the line between freedom of speech and misinformation and who draws it? So I bring that up, Jasmine, because you mentioned the topic of power. So that's something that I imagine some of the platforms are reluctant. I know on my own end, I've always thought that platforms are sometimes in between a rock and a hard place because there's pressure to act, but then to act is also showcasing a level of unchecked power. So mm-hmm. Jasmine, where do, you, where do you take that question? Because we're seemingly telling platforms to exercise a kind of an arbiter role. But as, as Zuckerberg pointed out, he certainly, I know his thinking has shifted, but uh, very reluctant to be an arbiter of truth, so to speak, his quote. Yeah. So it, if we look at what the government, um, as we, or as I say, the tradition with respect to the government deciding what's truthful, we don't want that. Um, we don't want it with platforms necessarily either to have a perhaps blanket idea of what is misinformation. Because as Claire was talking about, you're having, people are having conversations where they may have beliefs that are wrong or they don't have enough information to make uh, you know, decisions that they need to make. But shutting off that conversation is just as harmful as having these campaigns, these disinformation campaigns ongoing. So we don't want government necessarily to be involved in that. The idea, usually the traditional idea, first of all, with respect to the First Amendment in the United States, is that false speech, unless it's false advertising, uh, false speech, particularly as it deals with social and political issues, is still protected by free expression principles. It's still protected by the Constitution. We may not like that. Um, Certainly don't like it. Um, But that's what it is unless there's some harm attached to it, an actual real true harm, incitement, for example. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about violence, if we're talking about harm that, that could possibly happen. With, and that's with government, with mm-hmm. the platforms who, as you noted, have this concentration of power, we also wanna be careful about who they shut off and how they shut off content. The fact of the matter is that people wanna receive information People want to connect to information and then make choices about what information actually works for them. I'm not mm-hmm. going to say is true, but works for them. Their sets of beliefs and other things. I think what we have is a problem of uh, trust. And Claire mentioned this uh, as well, like knowing who and what sources to trust for this. And again, we don't want platforms making this choice about who is a trusted source or not. We can always say that the traditional media sources, we can say the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, they're trusted or more trusted probably, uh, depending on who you talk to, Mm -hmm. um, with respect to the kinds of content they put out. At the same time, what about upstart news organizations? Would Unicorn 
uh, news be considered a trusted source. They're really young, but they're doing a lot of work. So who gets to decide who gets to be trusted and whether or not these are the kinds of news organizations that, you know, the platforms allow to continue on their site. Again, this is about, this. I mean, obviously this is a complex conversation, but we don't necessarily want platforms to be like, no, this, 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 uh, you know, news organization doesn't meet our standards of what um, a trusted source or a good source necessarily. Well, that's the question then I'll ask over to Claire. I mean, because at, at the same time, you, you do have a lot of services that are trying to kind of rank the news. I mean, you have NewsGuard and other organizations like that, that create like a, what is a green light, red light to a lot of news. And you are going to rank, uh, you know, the gateway pundit below the New York times. So Claire, where, where do you, where do you think about that question is what, what is the role of platforms to, to create a little bit of a, a gatekeeping type of role with uh, what's even quality information? Do you think they have a role to play there? Or do you think that is uh, too much power for them to, to exercise. It's too much power. And I also think that going back to the information ecosystem in 2021, I do think there's a, there's a kind of naivete about, well, somebody just gives it a traffic light system or we just need more nutritional labels. You know, <clears> people <throat> are going to seek out information that reaffirms their worldview. And that is true across the political spectrum. And so ultimately about the internet means that you can go searching and you can find people that believe the same things as you, whether the earth is flat or whether or not uh, you know, the, you're, the president is really the president, you know, whatever it is, people are seeking that. And I think this idea of, well, we put a traffic light system on it and then the platforms will only prioritize those outlets that have a green. Because as Jasmine said, the idea, like there'll be many people who might be watching and probably not watching yeah. this, but the idea that the New York Times is trusted, they would, you know, throw everything out of the water. And so, you know, that we do have very different information ecosystems. And the reason that there is an information ecosystem that's really flourishing, and it tends to be on the right and more libertarian spaces, is because of this belief that their ideas have not been reflected in the mainstream media. And so, I mean, my worry is, and we saw this with Parler, Parler developed because there was a frustration that people couldn't say the things yeah. that they wanted to say. And as we know, had almost non-existent content moderation policies, et cetera, et cetera. So when we only focus on, Facebook and Google and Twitter, yes, they've been around a long time, but we're seeing now with Clubhouse and you know mm -hmm. all of these closed messaging apps um, that we can't, again, we can't be naive about all of these things. But just to pick up on this point of who makes decisions, you know, I am deeply frustrated that we, when I say, you know, more generally, didn't have a framework by which we could say, probably in the future, something bad will happen and very big decisions will have to be taken about content. And can we have a group of academics, ethicists, journalists, civil society, human rights professionals to help with that? No, we didn't. And instead on the 8th of January, a bunch of mostly white dudes in Silicon Valley started just be like, let's take these people off. There was a domino effect. There was no archiving, no transparency, no understanding of how they've made those decisions. And so the great deplatforming happened very much in a US context. You know, we, you know, we do a lot of work globally you know, who is the Alex Jones of Nigeria? Who is the mm. QAnon of, you know, Myanmar? And so the, the complete absence, and I, you know, I don't want to get into the Facebook oversight board, but I'm just deeply saddened that there hasn't been an oversight body that, you know, with all these governments talking about regulations, something that could be a third party auditing mechanism, because the idea that those decisions were taken very quickly, with probably all of them just DMing each other, being like, we're taking them down. I mean, it's extraordinary to me in 2021, that's what happened. So I think all of these questions about who's making decisions on the platform side about who's a good authoritative source or who should we take off, 
it is mind-blowing to me that there's a bunch of American-based companies making those decisions every day and there's no transparency. That's a good point. And that's actually one of the projects we worked on with All Tech is Human. I just recently put out a report on improving social media, kind of arguing for a collective holistic approach as opposed to, hey, let's just put Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, in front of in front of Congress. But we have a couple great questions I really want to get to. We have Ann Collier, who's, who's done some amazing work in the space over the last 20 years. She has a question that really hints to Claire what you brought up, but I'll ask it to Jasmine at first that, hey, Life has really changed since 1996. So Anne asks, uh, are platforms social institutions now, media companies, publishers, right? Because that always comes up. And we saw an earlier question on Section 230. Even though we have media in the name, it's not something that falls under the uh, FCC. So it is going to be different, normally thought of as kind of a conduit for user-generated content, but then at the same time, we've seen, you know, whether it be TikTok or Facebook, they're producing content, right? So Facebook has Facebook Watch. So they seem to be kind of a hybrid. So Desmond, I'm curious about your perspective, because obviously it has major legal implications, uh, but also the legal world can alter the implications to those tech companies. So I'm curious what, what you have to say about that. Yeah, so I think um, platforms are all of the above. Uh, they have their role in the various different uh, parts of that that were named the social institutions that they're creating and continue to sustain. They are um, producers of content themselves, not just using the UGC or the user generated content, but they mm -hmm. are, like you said, Facebook Live. They have their own shows. Uh, they have their own, you know, content creation um, branches or teams in their in their uh, the you know, the organizations, they're all of those things. Um, they're also ISPs, right? Like, so we saw Facebook is the internet service provider in certain parts of the world. Um, and people, you know, are rightfully concerned about those kinds of things. So with respect to legislation or regulation, it really will depend on what part of the organization you're attempting to regulate. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about Section 230, are you talking about the content that they allow to be published on their site? Um, that's where they'll get protection. But if you're talking about the content that they created themselves, that may be a different thing because then they're not, then they're actually involved in the development yeah. of content, which basically kind of removes that Section 230. So 230 is about basically a kind of passive, okay, you allowed this. Uh, stuff, content to be published. Uh, you may have been involved in a little bit of editing down, but you mm -hmm. weren't really involved in developing that content. But if you are actually, you know, allowing, you know, creating shows, then that changes who you are and how you can be regulated. So uh, Section 230 is not a blanket absolution from whatever uh, comes up on a platform. Mm -hmm. As far as the social institution power, this is the this is the power conversation we keep having. Like, who's allowed to um, inhabit the the mains that you've allowed people to create? What kind of speech are, is is available, or what kind of content's available? What kind of rules are you creating, yeah. and how you enforce those rules? Which is probably less of a legal question, but more of an ethical question, a governance question that we need for platforms. We do need the oversight, like Claire noted. Um, yeah. earlier but this is not necessarily a first amendment 
question with respect to what platforms are um, doing with that social aspect. I mean, we're seeing obviously as new platforms come about, whether they they're long staying platforms or just you know upstarts that you know do a little fizzle uh, for a year, that content moderation is a huge question and a huge problem, but also the targeting of people on platforms and how um, there's a vague or ambiguous way that platforms are treating different groups of different kinds of people when there's complaints about what's happening. So all of this is a question that obviously is complex. We've said that more than once already, but also that needs to be a focus of um, oversight, and regulators, but to a lesser extent for the regulators, because it's going to be really hard in the United States anyway, for there to be regulation related to, you know, content. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move outside of the United States for a little bit, because I know I've received a lot of questions uh, when people signed up for this, and I'll bring up a question now as well, really focused on the, the fact that oftentimes we talk about the U.S. and Europe. So mis misinformation is a threat everywhere, but the major spotlight is particularly in the U.S. and Europe. How can your work protect other countries who don't have as much light shed on, but are affected? So Claire, I'd love for you to take that question. How can we focus on other countries, especially if we talk about the, the great digital divide? I know with uh, Myanmar and with WhatsApp a couple of years ago, you had issues around, hey, here are countries that, that basically didn't have the same evolution of technology in terms of its access and use, and just now all of a sudden have a, have a smartphone and have Facebook and don't necessarily have the same potentially media literacy, digital literacy training that, that could have happened in our education system in the United States. Um, so I'm curious where you take that question. Where, where do you see other countries and their role in this? I could talk about this for days. Um, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from Brooklyn. Uh, I do live in the <laughs> US. Um, and I mean, we do work globally. And one of my deep frustrations is most of the money to fund this kind of work is from US funders who want to fund US work. Like back in 2017, we were doing a lot of work in APAC and we were talking about the importance of closed messaging apps. And people were like, oh, nobody uses WhatsApp in the US. And I'd be like, mm, diaspora communities do, communities of color do, who don't want to be mm -hmm. surveyed. But okay, if you want to pretend that it's not coming. And I think obviously with America, there's often a sense that America leads and the rest of the world follows. And actually, I think with disinformation, the reverse was true and there wasn't awareness of that. But for example, we worked, did a lot of, we've done a lot of work on elections because they were the sorts of things that people would fund. And so back in Brazil in 2018, was when I really understood the power of WhatsApp. And I would see a place that had paywalls against almost all quality news outlets. And so it was very difficult for people to access quality information. Yet WhatsApp and Facebook was free because Facebook had you know zero basics, which basically mm -hmm. meant that no data cost if you're on WhatsApp or Facebook. So surprise, surprise, people spent all day on those spaces sharing screenshots of news articles, but also lots and lots of false information. And I had this sudden moment of there's so much to learn from other countries, but there, there just isn't awareness that, you know, the rumors that we see in the US, we're already seeing them in, you know, the Philippines or Nigeria. Like, it, there aren't boundaries to the internet, which is why all of the legal and regulatory conversations are so fascinating because every country is coming up with its own response, not understanding that, you know, the information, the rumors cross, cross borders. So I'm deeply, I find it deeply frustrating that we don't have a global response to this. I sometimes joke that we need a UN agency for disinformation, mm -hmm. except we don't, because that would be a disaster. But we need something that is globally able to compete with the scale, resources, and agility of Silicon Valley. So we don't need a huge bureaucratic response, but we need something that is properly global. 
because at the moment we are on the back foot when we keep thinking about this from a country-based level. But I do think there's a lot to learn from the rest of the world that in many ways America isn't seeing, but it's the worst of the worst. And I think some of the frustrating conversations about the sixth was as if mm -hmm. it was the first time this had happened. And of course, human rights activists were like, hello, can I just remind you of all the conversations we've had in you know, Ethiopia right now, continuing Myanmar and other places that just hasn't been, people haven't taken seriously yet. We should have learned the failures there um, meant that, of course, they were going to fail here. Well, do you see uh, any movement towards adopting some of the, um, I guess, uh, work that's coming out of uh, countries outside of the United States and Europe that, that could be in kind of incorporated? I'll give you an example is Australia. They're doing a lot of work around safety by design. Uh, and obviously, they've had a lot more aggressive uh, rules around this. And then especially New Zealand after Christchurch uh, massacre, uh, they really kind of pushed and got a lot of people involved when they, they had a gathering in Paris right after. So uh, do, you, do you see any type of movement in that space where we're trying to learn from, from how all different parts of the world are, are approaching this issue? Yes, I mean, there are, there's amazing work happening globally, and I wish there was more of a spotlight. And sometimes people would say to me, why does nobody know about my work? And I have to say, you know, unless you get a Washington Post op-ed or New York Times, you know, it's just it's deeply frustrating that there are only like certain avenues where you'll get that. But I mean, obviously, I'm European. GDPR mm -hmm. is not perfect by any stretch, but, you know, a real attempt to think about user privacy. And I think to this point about Jasmine, you were saying, I don't think regulation is going to happen in the US. I completely agree with you. And, but I do think what's interesting is if a country, and maybe that's New Zealand, maybe, I mean, you, the UK is doing interesting things around Ofcom. I was doing something with the Irish government earlier today. It would be interesting if a government can come up with a framework that then might be usable or to some degree, the platforms might say, listen, we can't do pop-up regulation for every single nation, but this is a framework that we could work with. So I'm kind of interested at watching country level responses because I think that there might be a way to scale it. But um I mean, culturally, there's so many differences. You know, in Europe, we have a different idea around hate speech. You know, and I think mm -hmm. I love the idea that you talked about First Amendment absolutism. I struggle sometimes to have conversations in this country because it's like, First Amendment, Claire, have you read it? And the conversation gets shut down. I'm like, <laughs> I know, but dot, dot, dot. So I do think that there, there might be spaces in other countries to have these conversations, whether or not they would be applied in the US is a different matter. Although I will point out under the First Amendment, you can have uh, Holocaust deniers, which obviously you can't have in a country like, like Germany. But you did see Zuckerberg recently evolve his stance on that, whereas originally they said they, they would allow Holocaust deniers, and now they said they, they will not. So it seems to be moving away from that strict kind of American First Amendment type of type of thinking. So I'm very curious about that. But Jasmine, I want to kind of uh, pull it over to you. We also got this comment uh, similar to, to what Claire was mentioning about maybe having an international organization that can tackle this that's less bureaucratic potentially than the United Nations, but is in a polarized country, is what uh, Hira is talking about, in a polarized country or where government's trust is low, who is best positioned to deliver this service? So Claire, you mentioned your your uh, accent. My accent uh, is, is American, so I'm going to be trying to be more optimistic. So I'm, I'm curious then, Jasmine, uh, are, are you optimistic about any any type of group or any type of movement being able to to get their their hands around this this topic and make some uh, positive movements to have more of a kind of holistic collective uh, approach with this? So I think when we look at 
collectives that are organizing related to this kind of things of academics, scholars, journalists, um, other like civil society actors. I think that that's a way to move or try to angle this because those groups have one, the opportunity to involve people from around the globe, which is obviously a necessity with respect to tackling these issues of, of disinformation um, and looking at what other countries have done or what has happened in other countries, right? So as, as Claire uh, mentioned. So I think those kinds of collectives coming up with frameworks, advising perhaps governments, um, advising people and other organizations and maybe persuading platforms as far as what they could do to attempt to stem the tide of disinformation, misinformation without, um, I don't know if going overboard would be even, you know, scratching the surface of what could possibly happen, but mm -hmm. also to getting, getting governments and platforms to really have a threat kind of a risk assessment, like what are the possibilities that could happen? So we've seen disinformation, misinformation, we've seen that happening. It's, it's obviously continuing, but what are the other threats related to content that are connected to this, that are coming down the pike that haven't exploded yet, but are coming. And where have those, where have we seen those? Where have we seen indicators? Having this kind of like risk assessment and threat assessment mm -hmm. is really important. So those collectives doing that work and the ability to get that information out to policymakers, but also to platforms and persuade platforms, I think is really important. Well, that's the question I want to quickly ask both of you. Uh, and Jasmine, I'll start with you. Uh, are there any organizations or people that you think are are, are doing uh, very valuable work that you think is on the right path? Because here we're, we're talking about things that aren't working. Love to to, uh, to hear some kind of uh, individuals or organizations that you think are, are on the right path and doing some great work. So Jasmine, are there anybody uh, who, who comes to mind or any organizations? So yeah, there are quite a few, obviously Claire, I, but I also don't want to like forget people and have people be- no, just, This isn't an Oscar speech, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> like, you know, folks like Joan Donovan yes. at uh, you know, the Kennedy School. I think uh, there are quite a few groups at Data and Society uh, in mm -hmm. uh, the United States doing work on the West Coast. Uh, there's folks at UCLA and, and Stanford. There's a lot of different people doing work. Um, uh, you know, if I'm sorry if that didn't name you, oh, sure. but there are quite a lot of people who are doing work who are attempting to connect with platforms too and consult and consult with employees at platforms to try to get the employees involved, right? To make changes as, as to what's happening at platforms and to get scholars to, to really focus on uh, not just the fact that the misinformation or disinformation exists, but looking at how we can change things with respect to misinformation and disinformation. And I think that's really important. Okay. And then Claire, what about yourself? Are there any organizations or, or individuals that you think are on the right path with, with where we need to go on this issue? Yeah. So something that I've been really uh, talking a lot about recently is this idea that we kind of have two information ecosystems. So the one that we inhabit is unfortunately still pretty top-down, hierarchical and linear. And it's all about if we get the right messages from the right messengers in the right formats, it's a very hypodermic needle approach. Mm -hmm. um, if we actually look at what was happening around the 6th, it was a very participatory movement. Like Stop the Steal 
had had two months of people being told that they were part of a movement. They could find evidence. If they could find another piece of the puzzle, it would go, you know, it would become evident. It was participatory. It's non-hierarchical. It zips between, you know, your golfing buddies in a Facebook page, the Gateway Pundit, to Ted Cruz, to, you know, local talk radio, Fox News, the president, you know, it's, it's and messages ricochet around. And I and I keep thinking about that and thinking, how can we recognize the importance of that? And I would say that in our space, we there hasn't been a recognition of how do we properly work with communities. There's been, mm-hmm. we should resource media literacy, but it's still very top-down very passive. And actually, how do we embed? And I have to say the last year and a half working a lot with public health professionals, they, of course, know exactly that you embed with communities. It's resource heavy, but it's one to one conversations. It's working directly with those who understand the concerns of the community, understand what would work, understand who's trusted. And I think that we have a very we have this sense of like who's trusted. But it's, again, very 1996. And we've completely Mm -hmm. failed to understand how digital works with offline conversations. So, for example, community media, very early, I used to be an academic left in uh, you know, 2009, and then the London riots happened in 2011. I mean, it seems like forever ago. And remember at the time, the BBC paid all this money for a helicopter to watch the fires around London. And then afterwards, I heard all these community radio, you know, then the BBC was like, we don't know how this happened. And then all these community radio stations were like, we can have told you for the last two years this was going to happen. You just never talked to us, BBC, because you're the freaking BBC and you got all this money. But we were with our communities who were getting increasingly angry. And that is just the story that I just think about mm. all the time is how are we reaching community media? How are we really engaging with people on the ground? And it's, again, not cheap, not quick, but we're only going to get out of this if we stop thinking about this, about messengers, messengers coming yeah. down and really think about how do we, like, just let's say it, we got to learn from the other information ecosystem and give people agency. And at the moment we're not, and that's kind of why we're failing. So do you think that the the actual platforms need to be directly tied within these communities? Or do you think that they have these partnerships and relationships with larger organizations that are doing a lot of the boots on the ground uh, work with communities? And then they are tied in with the, the, the platforms. Yeah, because so, it goes back to power. So who do they mm-hmm. give ad credits to? Who do they promote in their algorithms? And this, I mean, we haven't really had this conversation with the First Amendment, but it's like, oh, marketplace of ideas. Well, it's not because algorithms are determining which market stalls you see and which you don't. And so when we're thinking about embedding with communities, if you're a really small civil society org, are you going to get anywhere unless you have to pay a lot of money to advertise on Facebook? No. So like all of those kind of dynamics are critical if we're going to take this seriously, because, you know, there's who do you trust? You trust the WHO, your local uh, national health provider or your local doctor or your local community health group or your church. Like, who is it that you're trusting? And, and it ch- differs by different people. And so, you know, those kind of things we have to understand and just think very, very differently about the way that our current information ecosystem is working. And the, and the platforms need to be part of it, but fundamentally this is about needs to be people powered. I agree. Yeah. And that's obviously a, a lot of what we're trying to do uh, at Alticus Human as, as we're kind of nearing end. I do, again, want to thank our partners at The Bridge. Check them out at The Bridge Work. Dot com And then also our organization, Alticus Human, is alticushuman.org. We re- recently released our report on improving social media that you can find at improvingsocialmedia.com. I also want to thank uh, Radical AI Podcast. This is going to be running on the Radical AI Podcast. We'll also have curated resources. So you don't have to take down copious notes. We're going to curate it all for you. So uh, Jasmine and Claire, I want to come back to you one last time for any final thoughts you have, but also where people can continue this conversation because as we we talked about we could continue this for the next couple of weeks right 
but we, but we don't have time and we're not going to live stream that much and I'm not going to hook up a catheter, right? We're, we're just not going to do that. But what we are going to do is we want people to stay in touch with you and to to stay in touch with your, your valuable work. So Jasmine, I'll start with uh, you. Any final thoughts and where can people stay in touch with you? So final thoughts is obviously this is a very complex uh, issue that continues to need to to be studied. I also want to say, though, that it's really important that we look at the different kinds of media that people can interact with beyond social media that is still fruitful. So radio, particularly I live in Florida, radio is still fruitful. You want to know why? Because radio stations still stay up when there's a hurricane. So what are the other sources of media, sources of information, and where is there a void of media or information that can take the place of these spaces like social media where people are encountering this information. Obviously, I'm at the University of Florida. I'm on Twitter um, and folks can find me there. Terrific. Yeah. And as you mentioned, it's kind of funny that here we thought originally with the web that there'd be information superhighway. Now we're talking about infodemics or kind of like information desert, if you will. So Claire, what about yourself? Any final thoughts and where can people stay in touch with you? Yeah, so just, I mean, I think one thing we have to recognize is not only is it complex, it's shifting continuously. And I think my concern about any kind of regulatory conversations is that we're regulating for 2017. <laughs> and so I think one thing I'd say is that we just need to keep being aware of how things are shifting. And yeah, we, we are at um, firstdraftnews.org and we have like, a, we have um, a latest section where we're always writing articles, but we have a training section, lots of free downloadable tools. We have a 14 day SMS course. So if anybody does work with their communities that we have lots of resources designed to help people do that. So um, yeah, and we're on Twitter. Thanks so much to David, Ryan, Polgar, and All Tech is Human for putting on this event and for Jasmine and Claire's expertise on this subject. And now it's time for our debrief. So Dylan, what's your immediate reaction and initial takeaways from this conversation? I thought this was a great conversation. I thought it really laid out uh, not just the complexities of this issue, but also some possible ways forward um, and how some different stakeholders in this conversation can potentially get on the same page. But sticking with the, the complicated bits, because I think those are, are sometimes more fun, um, is this, this web that we're weaving around things such as the First Amendment and free expression, especially in these international spaces. That's, that's kind of what I'm sitting with, is this idea of, can we use the First Amendment across different borders with social media that is experienced as such like this public space or the space that like exists and transcends uh, you know beyond borders like it is that real um and then to what degree can like regulation come in onto those companies and into those social media spaces because just i think as, as you and i have talked about before i believe on the show at some point although i'm forgetting exactly where um these companies although social media is experienced as this public space or this commons it, it actually isn't yeah, this is something we've talked about on the show before, right, Dylan? The fact that people, a lot of people at least, assume that like social media companies and private tech organizations are public entities, or at least that their platforms are. And usually this is because they're free and because there's no education about this stuff. But 
that's pretty harmful when people assume that those spaces are public and they assume that they're assume that they're governed in the same ways that public spaces are governed, such as uh, enforcing the First Amendment and nothing else. When that just that isn't the case, because these are private entities and they have their own private interests and they create their own laws. I, I guess I can put like a quote around laws. They they have their own governance for their own platforms, and that's largely because of this Section Two Thirty thing that everybody keeps talking about. Which, by the way, if you are new to Section 230 and you just really want to know what it is, we have some links in our show notes to explain a bit more about what it actually is and why it's so powerful, because a lot of people are talking about it, but it might not be common knowledge. But I think the thing that really stood out to me when we're talking about like this global private space that people assume is public um, was some, I think it was an audience member's question about the difference between misinformation and free speech. That was such an interesting question to me. I'm curious, like Dylan, what what is your answer to that question? What do you think? I mean, regardless of what the guest said. The difference between? Misinformation and free speech. I think it depends on where you're seated. Like, I think it depends on um, your political affiliation. I mean, that defined broadly uh, what, you know, which stakeholder are you? And then even then, right, if you're a user, not all users are are the same. And so like what something that could be uh, free expression for me might be seen as misinformation by someone else. And we saw that a lot, you know, at least in, in the United States, but we're from um, leading up to uh, the 2020 election, but then especially afterwards with what happened on, on January 6th and everything there, um, where there was a lot of information that was out there, what some people would consider information, especially like, you know, conspiracy theories, things like that, or what I would consider conspiracy theories, I should say. Um, and then there were a lot of people like myself saying those are conspiracy theories, like that's misinformation. That isn't just free expression. And for me, I guess the line is, is that there was active harm that would be caused by that. Um, and I think, I guess for me, um, coming from a philosophy background, like there's there's harm that's actually being perpetuated, like the violence at the Capitol, but then there's also this harm on uh, truth itself. And that's, I think, what this conversation got to the uh, center of is that, and why it's so complicated, is that truth is and continues to be at stake. And I think it's been for a while about who gets to determine what the truth is and who gets to determine misinformation is. But I think since 2016, um, up till now, this uh, there's been a greater focus on this idea of like, are we in this post-truth world? And again, we have talked about that on the show before, uh, but this conversation today, I think, really excavates um, this phenomenon of, of social media and the role that it has to play, not just politically, but just in our everyday lives about misinformation and free expression. But just, I'm curious about your perspective on this too. Um, where do you think the line is? And also, why does it matter? Ooh, those are two very separate questions. Also, I just, I have to say that I love that you brought up that this is all about truth, because that's definitely where I was going to take this to. And I also just love when we have conversations about what is the nature of truth on the show, because it definitely melts my brain a little bit. And uh, I think that we should have an episode dedicated 
specifically to post-truth world and fact-checking, we do have an episode with some of the people from Partnership on AI about um, media manipulation, and we get a little bit into the nature of truth and, and fact-checking on social media platforms in that episode. But I just, I am so interested in this idea of like, especially if we're talking about the difference between misinformation and free speech, the fact that anybody gets to label something as misinformation or fake news or untruth, not truthful, is is kind of mind-boggling when you think about who is actually making those labels and who is making the final call and the final decisions and then the downstream impacts of those decisions. And the fact that this is not a democratized process yet. So that's that's really what trips me up. But the, I think the question historically is, was it ever, right? Which is, I think, the, the why it matters uh, is an important question. Because, like, you know, truth was always controlled by those in power to some degree, right? Like, at least you know, the, the winners write history, like that idea. So obviously there are pockets of other truths that exist, but there are also, you know, like even in like early Christian, the early Christian world, people who were deemed as heretics, like the reason why they were deemed as heretics is because they were saying things against what the Trinity might be and then they were burned at the stake. And that was about truth, right? That was about like, what is the truth of Christianity at this time that it's in formation? And I'm not saying that we're necessarily living in that <laughs> same reality, but I'm saying that like truth has, it's never been neutral, <laughs> It's never been neutral in the world. For me, the distinction right now in social media is this like global world, this this question of scale. And I think the potential harm in like these hegemonic dominating narratives of what is true is larger than it's ever been in human history. Definitely. It's like we've taken the printing press and taken all the people who had access to that and now given the printing press to billions of people globally and told them that they have access to another billions of users that will gladly uh, absorb whatever information is is put in front of them. And I guess maybe that's not like fair to have a sweeping generalization about, but it is so much easier to get content in front of a lot of people now, more so than it's ever been. And so who's to stop us from just saying whatever we want? And it's not even just to say that like misinformation is always something that is done with the intent to harm. It's not like there are all these awful actors on these social media sites in these ecosystems who are just wanting to spread chaos. There are those people, but that's not the norm, at least from how I've seen it or encountered it. The problem is that everybody's got opinions. Everybody's got their subjectivities. Everybody's got their predispositions and their paradigms and their other buzzwords. And if we are given an audience of thousands, if not millions or billions of people, and we want to share those opinions, sometimes they come across as misinformation, or at least something that could be harmful, because at this point, I don't know if I even can confidently label something as misinformation myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you're, you're bridging into this idea of like, it's an attention economy too, right? Like, no, that's the way the algorithm works, is it brings more attention to more things that create attention. And, et cetera. and so for us, right, like as people who are looking at human-centered design, or hopefully trying to like focus on the user or like bring agency back into something that's that's more user-centered, even on social media, we have to really stare into the abyss of what democracy is. Like we, you know, people talk a lot right now, like democratization is the buzzword and it, maybe it should be, right? I, mean, I think it's a, it's a wonderful uh, value for us to have, but then if we're serious about it, we have to actually, you know, take it to the extreme to some degree of like, well, if this is our value, then how do we actually live into it? And like a real democracy, like even the U.S., right, is not an, a democracy, right? It's like a representational 
democracy. So it's not like a pure everyone gets a vote thing. It's like we elect people who then make decisions for us, quote unquote. Um, but like if we if we think about this technology development stuff and we say, no, we want this to be a true democracy where everyone has an equal vote. I, I just there's there's a lot there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about democratizing, truly democratizing AI, I feel like we could have hours of conversation about uh, blockchain and, and servers and nodes and um, different various ways to to actually democratize some of these platforms. So I, I do think that like technologically, it's a little bit more plausible and potentially achievable in the future if we're talking about like democratizing a tech platform as opposed to like an actual democracy as it stands and like as a political system to govern a society. But I don't know, maybe that's just because I'm like I'm a computer scientist and so maybe that's just the way that I think I'm more optimistic about yeah, I'm technology. Not. I'm I'm so not optimistic about that because like if you're gonna contend with that democracy, you have to contend with all the different systems underneath it. So capitalism, regulation, law, the fact that like all of those things have lobbyists throughout on like both sides and all sides of every eye. Like it's just I think to untangle all of that to uncover some level of actual democracy is um not necessarily going to happen anytime soon, but that's where I, 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 it doesn't mean we shouldn't work towards it, right? It doesn't mean we shouldn't work towards it. Okay. I guess we can agree that it probably won't happen anytime soon, but also soon is relatively arbitrary with the way that technology is growing at this rate. So True. who knows if, if this is something that could even be plausible in, in five years, 10 years, 20 years, I don't know what the technology landscape is going to look like at that point. So maybe we'll check back in, in a few years and let you all know. But for now, we would like to remind you that for more information on today's show, please visit the Continue the Conversation page at RadicalAI.org backslash continue dash the dash conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. We'll catch you bi-weekly on Wednesday for our episodes. And as always, stay radical.